source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Today's scripture reading is Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. If you're using the Pew Bible, it can be found on page 942. my walk with the Lord over, over the, the years, I don't think that there's a scripture that's challenged me or encouraged me more than Romans, chi- Romans chapter 6 through chapter 8. Um, this is, there's just a lot of meat in these, these uh, next few chapters, and just, I'm just encourage you guys to pay attention over the next few weeks as Pastor Jordan goes through this. Romans 6, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. I've seen the movie uh, Schindler's List uh, several times and recently have seen the last half of it a couple of times. It's, it's a terrible movie depicting the brutality of the Germans against the Jews. It takes place around Krakow, Poland, and deals with the removal of the Jews from the ghetto and in their systematic extermination. And the camp, Pazo, that's just outside of Krakow. What is remarkable at the end of the movie that has to do with this passage is the night that the Allies are coming to Krakow. Uh, he is out there with the hundreds of Jews, uh, Schindler, who saved them, 
that's the story of how he saved these uh, over a thousand Jews from death. And he tells them that night that coming midnight, everything will change. Uh, the Germans at that point no longer had power over the Jews. In fact, uh, at that point, it, it depicts the next few days how the general Goethe, who was over the uh, Pazal camp, was tried and executed, unceremoniously hung right on the grounds of the camp where he had had a villa. He didn't call it a villa. He didn't think it was big enough for a villa. But uh, he had a house overlooking the camp from where he would shoot people at will, anybody he wanted to, anytime. Absolute power. And then in a few days on that same grounds, he was being hung helplessly. And, in fact, Schindler himself, who was a member of the Nazi party, uh, told them that he would be a war criminal just because he belonged to the Nazi party. Now, they had papers on him in case he was caught to indicate uh, with sign names from those uh, hundreds of people that what he had done to save them. But he was able to do it in part because he was a, a Nazi party. But the point was, come midnight, the whole world changes. Everything, it's the same place, but come midnight, he no longer is a powerful executive in the German nation. He's a war criminal. And they no longer are subject to extermination. They're free. Just like that. Well, it's that kind of transformation that the Scripture teaches occurs or is brought about through the work of Christ. And that introduces our first point that Christ entered our existence and transformed it. Entered our existence and transformed it. Our existence in Adam, as we saw as a background in chapter 5, was one of sin and condemnation and death. That's what Adam in his sin brought to the human race. His was a locomotive that went over the ravine and took the whole train of humanity into the valley of sin and death and condemnation. And there it lay until Christ entered into humanity, Son of God, taking upon Himself flesh, living a perfect life, then bearing that sin and condemnation and death on the cross and as we talked about it, burst through death into life through the resurrection. And so there is a way out. <laughs> there is a pathway. There is life flowing from Christ. And if we trust in Him and become one with His death and resurrection, we can be carried out of death into a new life that begins now and will ultimately end in the resurrection from the dead ourselves. It's interesting in Jewish thought, the idea would be that the people of God at the end of history would finally reign in the new creation. What we have in the gospel is, if you want to come back to the middle of, of history, a man began to reign, the God-man, the Messiah, he began to reign at the right hand of God in the middle of history, not just at the end of history. 
That's the shocking thing. That was the mystery that was unfolded in Christ. It's not the resurrection then. The resurrection is now. And it's been accomplished. The resurrection life and the resurrection world has been opened up in Christ. And so, if you belong to Adam, you're still a part of that sin and death and condemnation and final judgment. But if you've become a part of Christ, you've entered into a new existence, like occurred at midnight that in, in, in Poland there. Everything was different. And so, Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and here's the uh, new... Revised Standard Version, which I think gives an accurate picture of what's said. Literally, it reads in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, a a very familiar verse to many of you. If anyone in Christ, new creation. The verbs are taken out to make the point. If anyone in Christ, new creation. And so NRS says, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. And it speaks not so much of you being a new creature as you being part of a new creation. And so it it reads, everything old has passed away. Everything has become new. That's the glorious privilege of those who belong to Christ. That he entered into our existence and now he's transformed it. Now in this passage you see how Christ himself went through this process. Read with me on page 943, in verses 9 and 10. This is is interesting. We don't normally think of it this way. But it says in verse 9, We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The word is the same word as Lord. Lordship. So it it was viewed then as the reality was that he was under the lordship of sin and death. And he carried through and burst the bonds of that sin and death. And now it says he died to sin. That is, he died to sin's dominion. He died to sin's uh, condemnation and the death that followed. That death no longer has dominion over him. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And this speaks of the reign that he has now before God. He lives to God. He lives on and rules the world on God's behalf. And the background to that is Adam made in the image of God, the true son of God made in his image, and he ruled for God. But that rule was given up. That rule was abandoned as he sinned against God. And so in Christ, our image has been restored. Our sonship has been restored. And we, through Christ, are reigning now at the right hand of God. Make no mistake, Paul teaches this in Ephesians 1, right after talking about Christ was exalted to the right hand of God, far above our rule and authority and power and dominion. Then he says, you were dead, but now you're made alive and you've been raised with him and seated with him in the heavenlies. There you go. We're as good as there. We're there in Christ. He's the first fruits, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. That doesn't mean just that he's the first one to, and we're going to follow. It means he's the first of the whole that will be resurrected. 
It speaks of the solidarity of his people. He's raised, they must be raised. They must be raised now as they participate in that life and it must finally issue in the final resurrection. It has to happen. We're one with him. He has acted on our behalf. He has restored us to the image of God. That's why later, just a page over in not page 944 there in Romans 8, it says that, He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. See it? He was to be raised and become the the first human being in the new life, but He was just to be the firstborn of many brethren. And that was planned before the foundation of the world. And so we will surely be glorified in that final day. So, as Gerhardus Voss, a great theologian in Princeton, the early part of last century, he says, there's been created a totally new environment, or more accurately speaking, a totally new world in which we are now the inhabitants and we're participating in that world. Not just a new self, of course that's true, but a whole new surrounding world that we've been brought into in Christ. We're under new management, folks. (laughs) We've got new connections. We've got a new life. We have a new governor. We have a whole... Everything has been made new for us. And so Christ has entered our existence and He has transformed it. And so, secondly, the resurrection is our source of present life. The resurrection of Christ is the source of our present life. You see this in this passage. Notice what he says in verse 4. And this is interesting. He'll, He'll argue this way. He'll say, Christ was raised from the dead, therefore we have new life. And then, interestingly, he argues backwards and he says, because we're going to be raised from the dead, we presently have new life. He's saying, given that we are going to be resurrected, that means we're united to Him. That means we're participating already in that resurrected life. We have to have a new life. And this is how he's answering that question that he begins the chapter with. Are we going to continue in sin? That The word there is persist in sin. It basically would mean, are we going to continue under the lordship of sin? And of course he says, no, we're not going to continue under the lordship of sin. No more than Jesus continues under the lordship of sin and death. He doesn't. We're not. Because we're united to Him. And He has died to sin. And sin no longer has hold of Him. He is living completely to God. And He brings us into that condition. The resurrection is the source of our present life. And so He says in verse 4, We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, indicating there the power of God and possibly the Spirit of God, certainly the majesty of God into which he entered. All of those things are, are likely in view here. He was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father so we too might walk in newness of life. That's the point. So that being united to Christ, reunited to everything He did, everything He is. So we're united to His death and we're united to His resurrection and we walk in newness of life. 
Basically, the idea there, as, as Wright has put it, you now stand and walk on resurrection ground. I like that phrase. You stand and walk on resurrection ground now. And see, after he says that we walk in newness of life, notice how he argues the other way in verse 5. For if we've been united with him in his death, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. See, we walk in newness of life because we're gonna, we're, we will be united in the final resurrection. Well, if we're united in the final resurrection, we must be living a new life now because we're united to him. We're joined to him. So, Paul, whether you're looking at Christ's resurrection in the past or your resurrection in the future, it points to the same thing, he says. One commentator, commentator, Russell Kirk, points these two arrows up from both of those. And at the top of it is newness of life. Whether you go from the resurrection of Christ or you go to your absolute final resurrection, it means newness of life for us. So that the... This past resurrection of Christ intrudes upon the believer's present. The means of living a righteous life before God now is the resurrection. And all of his commands, Paul's imperatives, they depend on the present experience of these benefits of Christ's resurrection. And so the new age that is inaugurated through Christ's resurrection, it breaks through in the present and it gives life to us. And that means a new moral life. It means a new ability to leave sin and to walk after Christ. That's what newness of life means. It means, as he says in uh, verse 6, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. I love the way New English Bible puts it. So we might set our feet upon the new path of life. The new path of life that is prepared for us, that we have through fellowship with Him. And so that your daily conduct is determined by those deep realities that you are connected to the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, I want to end this third thing and try to make some specific application about sin. So Christ has entered our existence. He's transformed it. Now His resurrection is the source of our life. What He is at the right hand of God and all of the virtue of His death and resurrection, it's ours for the taking, ours to trust in, ours to rest in. And that's why, as we said last week, we come to him and say, Oh, Lord, I am dead. Make me alive. Oh, Lord, I'm under the dominion of sin and death and condemnation. Lord, deliver me through your death and resurrection. Bring me into the new world, the new order under your authority and governing. Set me free continually and may your resurrection life come be mine. Let me just, along those lines, mention to you for your own uh, meditation, Ephesians chapter 1. Notice how Paul puts this in Ephesians chapter 1. He, he prays that you would, this is on uh, page 976 if you don't know where Ephesians is, but 
he, he prays that we would know certain things, okay? That we would understand certain things that God has done for us. <clears throat> he says, I want you to know the hope that He's called you to. Imagine how that would strengthen us to have this hope and have it clear so that every day we are undergirded by hope. We never lose hope. And he says also what his inheritance is. Well, there's another aspect of hope. So I want you to know your, have a firm hope. I want you to know your inheritance. And then he says, I also want you to know what the, is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. See? He connects. He says, I want you to know the immeasurable power that is yours if you'll trust in Him. And power in this case, as He talks about to the end of Ephesians, means standing against the evil one, standing against sin, walking in newness of life. It's not just power so you can lift something. You know, that's not the kind of power. It's moral power. It's the power to obey God. It's the power to love. It's the power to put sin to death. He says, I want you to know the greatness of the power that's yours. It's the power that raised Christ from the dead. So the idea is that resurrection is now coming your way. That resurrection enlivens you and brings you into its new life. You and I are brought into the resurrection world, the resurrection life. And Paul talks about this over and over in his epistles. It is huge to him. You cannot, brothers and sisters, you cannot ignore it. You can't brush it aside and say, oh, I'm just going to obey God. No, this is central to our obedience. That's why he says in verse 11, you must consider yourself dead to sin but alive to God. That's how you have to think about yourself. And Paul does not think that you will obey God outside of thinking about death and resurrection and your union with Christ and what that means for you. Real life comes by faith, by trusting in Him and giving yourself up to Him in that way. And so we can say that Christ has taken the old existence to the mat, so to speak. He has brought it down. He has rendered it powerless. He says that in verse 6, so that the body of sin, that old way of life might be brought to nothing, nothing might be rendered powerless. You could say that sin had an iron grip on us, but now sin has arthritic hands and the bones have been broken. (laughs) This can't hold you anymore like it could. It had you in an iron grip, but now sin can't, grip you with its arthritic hands and broken bones. It cannot hold you. Jesus has uh, the old existence, you might say, looking for its prey, but it can't find it anymore. Taking that illustration or, or the picture of Jurassic Park of the raptors, you know, s- jumping up and snapping, but sin can't get you anymore. In that sense, sin can't own you anymore. It can't dominate you anymore because you're safe in Christ. 
and He holds you forever. Yeah, there will be assaults and there will be failures and there is weakness, yes. But there is always and can be always for those who believe progress and security and a final outcome that is never in doubt that you will be made completely like Christ. Amazing statement that John makes in 1 John 5.18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Basically does not own him anymore. The evil one does not own you anymore. And that's why James can say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And as we've said before, this is a battleground image. And the battle and, and, and the image is a route where the enemy is running for his life. And, and I just think, that's crazy. I do. I, I, if you're like me, you read that and you say, well, that's just crazy. You know. But it's what we are in Christ and the, and the power by his Grace to resist. And that's why he says in Ephesians 6, when he talks about the spiritual forces that we fight against that are way beyond us, he says, stand strong in the Lord. In the Lord and in His might. This is resurrection language. The resurrection life that we have in Him. And so, this new life is one in which We are removed from that dominion, even as Christ himself is removed and died to sin and and death no longer has dominion over him. Now he lives and lives to God. He says, so you consider yourself just like Christ, who is dead to that sin and death. You consider yourself dead to sin and death. And as he is alive to God and lives to God and reigns under God, You look at yourself in that way. That's who you are. That's what has happened to you if you trust in Christ. And that's the hope for anyone here. Your hope for liberty is the death and resurrection of Christ. And there is no other hope held out in this world. We can live in union with the resurrection of Christ I think of uh, that movie Shawshank and another, okay, violent movie. (laughs) Uh, Oh, my pastor, (laughs) right? Um, I think it's one of the greatest movies I've ever seen, real redemptive in many regard. But because it's about prison, it's, it's a violent movie. And if many of you have seen it, Andy Dufresne, uh, is, is not guilty, but he's put into prison, two life sentences. And at one point, he's been put into a double, uh, double 30 days, 60 days of solitary confinement. And it, it came on the heels of his finding a young man who had been talking to the actual murderer of his wife and her lover. He had been charged with that. This young man actually was around the man that did it, the man who confessed it. And so he, uh, Andy Dufresne takes this to the uh, warden, Warden Norton, and says, can't we find out who this guy is? 
I, I could get free. I could get out of here. Of course, Norton doesn't want him out of there because he, uh, a banker and a man expert in <clears throat> everything financial, has been cooking his books for quite a few years. And he's amassing a, a, a fortune through what Andy is doing for him. And so in answer to his uh, question, will he uh, do something about it, that young man is assassinated, and then Andy is thrown into 60 days of solitary confinement. And talk about under the dominion. Absolutely no hope whatsoever. And we're all shocked when Andy goes into his cell. He has a piece of rope. We think maybe he's going to hang himself that night. The next morning, the viewer, you you and I don't know anything until we see it unfold. He doesn't come out of his cell at the call. We all think maybe he's hung himself. They go down there. He's gone. He's gone. Of course, the warden is incensed. He wants him found. Where is he? Where is he? And he starts asking his friend, uh, who's played by um, Morgan Freeman. <laughs> you, none of you seen it either, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> 300 people. Morgan Freeman. Stupid. Okay. So he's asking everybody, and of course he gets mad. He starts taking the rocks that Andy uh, worked with, throwing them everywhere, and he throws them at a poster on the wall, hits the poster, thinks it's going to bounce off, and it goes through the opening. Bounces down a corridor of some kind, and they tear it open, and he's bored a hole, a little pickaxe, 30 feet, gone through a sewer, out, collected all that money, and he's on the beach in Mexico, you know. (laughs) He's gone, okay? And, and I think, brothers and sisters, I think in a sense of Satan and sin and death and condemnation tearing that poster and looking for us. And we're gone. <laughs> we're gone. He never will do anything to Andy Dufresne again. He will never make him polish his shoes. He will never put him in solitary confinement. He will never be beaten up. He will never abuse him. He's gone. And that's the picture that we find in Scripture. You are delivered from that world and that dominion and that ownership and that lordship. And you're brought into one of kindness and benevolence and happiness where your Lord, rather than abuse you and misuse you and put you to death, has died for you. Died for you. And now rules the world on behalf of his people to gather his people, to build him up into people of love and use them as instrument of light in this world. And finally, to enter into the kingdom of resurrection and the renewed heaven and the renewed earth. Which world do you want to belong to? You want to be in prison or you want to be, in a sense, on God's beach where you've been set free? set free to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and to live out His love in this dark, dark world. It's there. He's there. He's, his resurrection life is yours if you'll trust in Him. Let us pray. O oh Lord, 
You've entered our existence and transformed it. Your resurrection is the source of our life. And you've entered our existence and destroyed the former way of life. You have set us free. Lord, we praise you. It came at the expense of your own suffering, unimaginable suffering. But as Paul says in Philippians 2, you did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you poured yourself out and you became a servant and you became obedient even to the point of death, the death of a cross. As you said to your disciples washing their feet that showed by that that you were cleansing us, Lord. You became our servant in death. You came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life a ransom for many. Oh, servant, Jesus, Lord, we would worship you afresh. We would give our lives up to you. We would trust you afresh that we don't have to live as we've lived. We don't have to think as we've thought. We don't have to subject ourselves to those things that have governed us. We have a new and glorious master who has set us free, Lord May we truly consider ourselves dead to sin, dead to that life, and alive to a new one. Lord, may it have practical effects in every area of our lives, as husbands and wives and parents and children, the way we live in your body, the way we live in this world, the way we deal with sin, the way we worship, the way we pray. Oh, Lord, may we walk in the freedom of your resurrection. Thank you that this is what you have done to save your people. We rest in you, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away